following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, good morning, church. For those visiting today, welcome to Covenant Life Fellowship. My name is Chris Guastafaro, and I am an elder here at CLF. And I feel deeply honored and incredibly grateful for the opportunity to share with you on this beautiful morning. For over three years, I've had the privilege of being a member of an esteemed elder team here at CLF. I'm married to Jamie. We've been married 23 years. Five months, 24 days, 14 hours, and of now three minutes. Two handsome young men, Isaac and Sam, proof that good looks do run in the family, even if I may not have contributed very much to that department. CLF has been our family for more than a decade. In the last 10 years, something happened. When we started attending CLF, I realized that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only husband who felt inadequate. I wasn't the only dad who didn't have it all together. I wasn't the only individual that feared the unknown. This realization was very important to me because something happened at CLF. The gospel became infused in every area of my life. I cannot overstate the life-changing impact of turning one's attention to Christ and his redemptive work. When my attention shifted from a man-centered interpretation of God's word to a gospel-centered perspective, my worldview changed. I went from horizontal to vertical. From God bless me in this endeavor so that I will be successful, horizontal, to Lord, you've known me since the beginning of time. I pray for moment by moment grace because of the work that Christ did on the cross, vertical. But it's like a magnet, right? Up and down. Up and down. As the world draws us to itself, Christ is pulling us up. Christ, self. Christ, self. Christ, pride. Our Horizontal inclinations, one of them, one of the horizontal inclinations is, is for us to seek ways to avoid hardship and challenges that life presents with us. We do this because we have a natural yearning for a longer life on earth, which isn't bad in of itself. We wouldn't want to be a part of future generations and living as long as we can to witness that. Does anyone remember if anything significant happened in 2020? 
In particular, February 28th. For those of you who do, I am willing to bet that you want to forget it. Why? Because that was the day that COVID-19 officially made its way to Oregon. What about March 23rd? A statewide stay-at-home order was issued. In fact, the rest of the country was on some form of lockdown, but this was just the beginning. A different kind of turmoil erupted. In May, the death of George Floyd ignited a worldwide storm of Black Lives Matter riots. Months of chaos and anarchy followed. How could we ever forget the clashes, the violence, the looting? The Pacific Northwest became a hotbed of anarchy and dysfunction. Your elder team spent hours and hours meeting, praying, discerning God's word in an effort to guide and to lead all of you during this tumultuous time. And I am so glad we were together. Systemic racism, police reform versus defending law enforcement. What? Why are we even having these conversations? The global economy started to rock. We were experiencing a, a growing unease and tension between the United States and China, something that hadn't happened for nearly a decade. Invasive social reforms, deeply divided communities and churches. And just as we thought we couldn't bear anymore, Oregon was engulfed in wildfires. Our region was in an apocalyptic haze. The air quality index in Roseburg reached a record 540. How could we forget? We were hemmed in on all sides of these raging fires. Additionally, we were required to wear masks. Some individuals who chose not to get vaccinated lost their jobs. There were other events such as a chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal, unraveling border crisis. Each one of these events on its own was traumatic, but they all seemed to blend into one big colossal mess. At the time, there wasn't any clear resolution in sight. Every day, new radical events swept through America. The world we once knew was being altered in real time. And because of this, many of us were left in a state of bewildering darkness and confusion. For the first time in my lifetime, I felt a crumbling of my surroundings, and it was terrifying. I didn't know what to do with this. I remember thinking, is this the beginning of the end of America as we know it? I felt frail. Every worst-case scenario was running through my head. But what overwhelmed me the most was navigating through this with my family. How was I supposed to lead and care for them during this challenging time? I'm not going to look at them because I'm going to get choked up. What I typically took for granted had begun to show rock cracks. What I hadn't made priority was being exposed. My freedoms, my health, my ministry, my marriage, 
the future of my boys, their future families. On one hand, I needed to wrap my head around all of this. On the other hand, I also needed to guide and support my family effectively. During all of this, Jamie had been grieving the death of her father while caring for her mother on hospice. Jamie's mom passed away several months later. Tragically, each one of the elders had also lost one or more close family members during this time. It was heartbreaking, but we were all able to grieve together for one another. Jamie and I were also grappling with the fact that we were going to be empty nesters soon, something we did not realize would be so difficult in of itself. My capacity for another thing was dwindling. I became aware of my limitations. Lord, when's the next hammer going to drop, I would think. This is heavy, God. It's hard. It hurts. At the time, I was 45. I'm currently 36. (laughs) I remember vividly getting this thing stuck in my head, this perseverating thought that I couldn't shake. For years, I'd been looking forward to someday seeing my boys become husbands and daddies. I've dreamed about witnessing them lead their families well. As uncertainty shrouded our world, I began really for the first time questioning everything in Chris's perceived future. That was a very difficult time, but it allowed me to understand how incredibly weak and frail and finite I was. It was the first time that I had fully grasped what a fleeting life really meant. Can anyone here resonate with any of this at all? If you were like me, you were praying that the the Almighty root out all the crazy and do a major reboot to the good old days. And you've probably heard this message before from the platform, but it's important to say it again. Regardless of your circumstances and what is happening around the world, Christ is still on the throne. He wasn't surprised by any of what happened. The year 2020 A.D. did not change the nature of God. But in our weakness, we were tempted to change our perception of who God is. We often want God to rescue us from our problems. We yearn for him to make everything return to its previous state. We want him to prolong our lives. But what happens when he doesn't? What if he doesn't rescue you from your situation, from your hurts, your dashed dreams? When our deepest cry is for God to rescue you and change your circumstances, your line of sight is horizontal. What I hope you will observe this morning is that the psalmist directs his cry to God while trusting in God's wisdom and eternal plan. You see, 
the psalmist situation was out of his control. Yet he, he knew that everything was under God's sovereign covering. So what does he do? He shifts his focus vertical. Here's my big idea this morning. Although our lives on earth are temporary and our mortal bodies are fragile, we find comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ, the eternal and unchanging Son of God, is seated firmly on the throne in heaven. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 102. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms. Chapter 102. Psalm 102 serves as a poetic reflection on human frailty, the fleeting nature of life, and the steadfastness of God's character. It it also gives us a, a glimpse of the eventual end of, of this physical world and how God will continue to exist with his children. This psalm is a poem where the psalmist, psalmist gives us hope. His message is this. Simply, we are vulnerable, we are fragile, and we live on this earth only temporarily. The world we live in is in uncertain is in uncertainty and it is also fleeting. God, however, is constant. He is dependable. He is unchanging and timeless. Similar to Dave's sermon last week on Psalm forty four, Psalm one oh two belongs to the genre known as the Psalms of Lament. And it consists of three distinct sections. So here's the roadmap for today. This morning we will be navigating these three sections, a few verses in each one. In section one, we'll discuss the author's affliction and complaint to God. In section two, we'll look at the psalmist's address to God's eternity and sovereignty. In section three, I'll talk about God's eternal rule and hope for restoration. So let's open our Bibles. If you're physically capable, I invite you to stand with me as I read God's word. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. I incline, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. That's a verse to put on your, your fridge there. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow. On the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. 
verse 12. This, this is the second section. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples, get, peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord, this is the last section. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established for you. You may be seated. Many scholars suggest that Psalm 102 was written during or after the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE when the Israelites were in captivity and facing great hardship. For those not familiar with this area, think Kings, 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25 when King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. This was during a time when the Babylonians destroyed the temple while the people of Judah were being exiled. It was a troubling time for the Israelites. They had been taken captive, and for 70 years, the holy city of Jerusalem was in shambles. God's work and word had seemingly come to a standstill. You can see where the psalmist is coming from. Because all of Israel during this time, uh, uh, it served, or during this time, all of Israel, uh, was reflecting and repenting and, and, uh, used this as a growth for their community. Greece grip verses one through 11, the first section, the, the psalmist expresses deep distress. He uses metaphors to describe physical and emotional suffering. The psalm begins with an urgent cry for help and the desperate plea for God's attention. The writer is experiencing affliction. He's experiencing loneliness and a sense of fading away. But why is he suffering? We really don't know. But whatever he is going through... It's unbearable. The author begins his complaint with an urgent cry for help. Let's look at verse 1. The the writer here is desperately requesting God's attention. It reads, Hear my prayer, O Lord. 
Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. So what's going on here is that the writer is desperately seeking comfort in solace. He's in pain, either emotionally or, or physically in pain. In his cry for help, he, he wants God to hear his prayer and respond. He cries, let, let my cry come to you. So the psalmist is most likely signaling that he has nowhere else to go. He's perhaps exhausted all human and earthly interventions. It's a cry of complete weakness and humility. When you bring your needs to God, what is your posture? Rarely does God respond to our prayers the way we think he should. Yes, we acknowledge verbally that in his wisdom, he will answer us in his timing. But deep down, deep down, we, we have a way we want things to go. And especially in America, but not only, but especially in America, we have a plan B. If God doesn't answer us right away. And, 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 I, and I say especially America because I worry sometimes that, that we are so rich with resources that we, we place God in our own stack of tools. Instead of turning to God as a, as a last resort when all, all else fails, we need to approach him with a genuine faith and trust. Let your intention be pure, without any hidden agenda to manipulate or control the path he chooses. Surrender to his divine will and have complete confidence in his intended outcomes when they occur. Verse 1 invites us to develop a deep and authentic relationship with God. And in doing so, we begin to trust exceedingly in his guidance. You can find comfort and hope when you genuinely seek his presence. Verse 2, the writer yearns for God's response. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress, he speaks. Here the author is associating uh, metaphorically uh, God with, with human features. By, by using this figure of speech, he's saying, God, I want your attention. I need your favor. I need your relief. This matters to us. It matters because we can trust that God will respond to us when we cry out to him. In fact, we should have an expectation that he will respond to us. Understand, however, like I said earlier, that God will respond to you in his timing and on his terms and not yours. This is very, very difficult. I say it again, when we feel like we need an immediate answer. So what happens when God's timing isn't your timing? How do you respond? 
The main idea of in this first section is is that we should seek and call upon God during times of profound despair, regardless of whether we feel God's presence or not. In Jeremiah 23, it reads, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do do not I fill the heaven and earth? God is not distant. He's not detached from us. He's present and intimately involved in the lives of his people. Some of you may know Dave Jenkins. Uh, He's an exceptional brother here within our CLF community, and he recently penned, Whatever you have going on today and wherever you are in life, you are never beyond the searching gaze of God, nor beyond the care of an unchanging Lord who sees, knows, and loves because of Christ. Run into the safe arms of the Lord, whose promises are sure, steady, and true. I I just love this. There's no place you can go where God is not with you. I was listening to an R.C. Sproul podcast the other day, and he said something very similar to this. And he he said, that is actually very encouraging. It's also very terrifying. (laughs) Do we really want God to be everywhere that we are all the time? (laughs) There's a challenge I'd like to address that I observe, mainly in myself. Many of us struggle to turn to the Lord during times of overwhelming hardship when we cannot see beyond the gloom of our circumstances. And I liken this to someone needing to make an important decision. However, they become paralyzed in fear because they can't predict the outcome. Raise your hand if you're a control freak. (laughs) The result of this is that you make no decision at all. You become frozen. Imagine being stranded in the vast ocean and feeling lost. You don't know which direction to swim. You don't want to swim the wrong direction, so you freeze. Immediately you realize you just made the situation worse. Still not knowing which way to go, you choose to wait, even if it means risking drowning. Seek God as soon as possible, especially when it feels contrary to do so. You will find comfort in his presence. So what does this look like practically? Connect with your creator. Confide in your creator. Share your innermost thoughts, worries, and challenges. He understands your every worry. He desires to bring you closer to him. Instead of waiting, view every difficulty as an opportunity to grow closer to Christ. Spend time in scripture. The more you invest in God's word, the greater your understanding of his nature. He desires to commune with his children. He wants you to seek out treasures embedded within his word. He longs 
to communicate to you through his holy scripture. And I apologize, I don't have, I didn't get the stuff in time to, to Perry to get on the board. In this, this first section, the, the writer is passionately and desperately appealing to God. But what is he really asking for? What is his complaint? The scripture actually, if, if you go to it, you may in your, uh, one of your headers in, um, in Psalm 102, uh, before it says Psalm 102.1, some of them reads that this is a complaint, a psalm of complaint. Let's look at uh, verses 3, 11, and 24. We may skip around a little bit, uh, but hopefully you can track with me here. In the following excerpts, uh, the psalmist is confronting the reality of his own mortality. The grief of him not knowing how much longer he has to live had a grip on him. Go to verse 3, please. And then we're going to skip to verse 11. In verse 3 it reads, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. Verse 11 reads, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. In both of these verses, the psalmist expresses the shortness and fragility of life. Both verses take on vivid descriptions. They show how distressed the author is. He, for whatever reason, he can see that the near, or the, the his end is, is getting nearer and nearer. Let's skip over uh, to verse 24. Even though this verse uh, is in the third part of the psalm, it culminates the author's complaint from the first section. It's important to note that verses 23 and 24 reveal the age of the psalmist. In verse 23, it reads, mid-course, while in 24, we see, midst of my days. In my study, I I came to learn that he was a middle-aged man. We can assume, because of their lifespan uh, being shorter than than ours today, uh, we can assume that the author was around 30 years old. I want to point you to how this psalm, especially these, these verses here, 23 and 24, uh, re- resonate with, with us deep down, both in joy and despair. In, in verse 24, the author is pleading for God's intervention and mercy to sustain his life. He's saying, oh my God, I, I say, take me not away from the midst of my days. He's terrified of not living a full life. He's crying out to God, please don't cut my life short. I have more to do on this earth. Are we any different? Would you not be having the same complaint? In my personal distress, I was crying out to God, God, please don't cut my life Short, I, I have much more to do on this earth. I've got places to see, bucket lists to check off. I, I don't want to leave Jamie alone. I, I want to see my sons get married, my grandchildren get baptized. I want to see Chelsea win all five cups in one season and attend the Champions Cup, which is the most important of all of the European football cups. Okay, um, 
Have, have you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, have you genuinely confronted the concepts of your mortality? You've heard it said here before, if, if you're a believer, living here on earth is the worst it's going to get. You guys remember Dave saying that? If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, living here on earth is the best it's going to get. Keep that in the back of your mind. Some of you here this morning may be experiencing what the psalmist is describing. And I acknowledge that there are also individuals here who are currently providing care for their loved ones as they approach the end of their life's journey. To all those who find themselves traversing this path, you may be consumed with fear or weighed down by sorrow. If you are a believer today, can I be an encouragement to you? There is excitement and anticipation in heaven where our Father is calling you or your loved one home. We anticipate the eternal presence of Christ Jesus in a renewed world. We can envision a future where sickness, cancer, and sin no longer exist. We will see him as he really is. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. I encourage you to meditate upon this psalm. It has been life-changing for me. Let's go on to the next section, uh, Supreme Intervention. In verses uh, 12 through 22, the author does something remarkable. He shifts his focus away from his complaints and redirects his attention toward the never-ending power and authority of God. He begins to bask in the eternal nature of God. In verses 12 through 24, uh, they, they serve as a powerful reminder of God's unwavering authority over every aspect of existence and that his plan is to redeem his children. If you were, uh, uh, paying attention to the, the, uh, the worship song set that, that, uh, Perry chose for today's sermon, it is loaded with all of this right here. That's what it was just wonderfully put together, in my opinion. I love what John Calvin writes. <clears throat> and I apologize. I wish this was on the board. Uh, what are the changes which the whole world undergoes, but a kind of presage, yea, a prelude of destruction? If the whole framework of the world is hastened to its end, what will become of the human race? If all nations are doomed to perish, what stability will there be in men individually considered? We ought, therefore, to seek stability nowhere else but in God. Love that. Our hope is secure because we can trust in the unchanging nature of God. In verse 12, the author is using a, a metaphor to describe a very powerful scene. It's a, it's a king sitting on his throne. This king is exuding an immense sense of greatness and importance. 
But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. The phrase, but O Lord, are thrown, but you, O Lord, are thrown forever. What that represents is the eternal and enduring nature of God's reign and authority. I would like for you to imagine with me what the psalmist may have pictured when writing this scene. Uh, So envision this scene with me. Uh, There's a king sitting on a throne. Uh, This figure is radiating power and and majesty. He's dressed in resplendent robes and embellished with precious gemstones that catch the light. It shimmers with every, every movement. His presence commands attention and respect. The king has a calm and powerful expression. His eyes convey immense knowledge and understanding. His confident and dignified posture shows that he is a strong and unwavering ruler. This king has complete control over his kingdom and will so for many years. Every action he takes is intentional and serves a very specific purpose. Do you get the picture? Can you see it? You're thinking Lord of the Rings, aren't you? Yeah. I was a little bit. This, of course, is a it's, it's a very weak comparison to the resplendent Christ on his heavenly throne. But in this world, the king's throne is a symbol of stability, justice, and guidance. It means that God is always with us. He's watching over us and taking care of us. It gives us a, a feeling of safety and comfort knowing that we're never alone. This imagery, uh, it, it evokes a deep reverence to an unchangeable God and serves as a constant reminder that he reigns eternally and his infinite wisdom and power endure for all time. In Job 23.13, which I, I, I would say is my new favorite verse, it reads, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Job here explores the idea that God's nature is constant and cannot be altered. He's saying that no matter what we do as humans, we can't change or stop what God intends to happen. God's will is always accomplished. His desires are not subject to human influence or manipulation. How does this translate? God has absolute power and authority. In this verse, Job is basically saying that he has complete trust in God's faithfulness. He believes that God will carry out the specific plan he has for Job's life. And this is where we find a a very important contrast. Whereas in the first section, the author experiences suffering and mortality. The psalmist in the second section reveals triumph and eternality. In verses 3 and 11, there's despair. In verses 12 through 24, There's hope. 
by embracing these kinds of paradoxes in Psalms, we're able to acknowledge the complexities of the human condition and how it is that we relate to God. It also helps us understand God's nature more intimately. I, I want to repeat something that Job said, and it's because it's my new favorite verse. And perhaps you may be inclined to sear it deeply on your hearts. What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. The promise of God's sovereignty over your life should soothe your deepest fears and anxieties. Let's say that again. The promise of God's sovereignty over your life should soothe your deepest fears and anxieties. Verses 19 through 20, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may Praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. I'm almost finished here. In these next two verses, the psalmist is experiencing a harmonious interplay of God's supremacy in his role in redeeming his children. And I I don't want you to miss the importance of what's going on here. God's supremacy is central to the redemption of man. And so what I'm saying here is that God's nature encompasses his unique characteristics, attributes, his power and authority. And it is this that enables him to offer forgiveness, love, and restoration to humanity. I want to step back into verse 12 for a moment, then jump to verse 19 again. So remember in verse 12, the author depicts God as a majestic king seated on a throne. He's revealing his absolute sovereignty and supreme authority over all humanity. Let's go to 19, verse 19. The psalmist now takes this imagery a little further. Speaking about the king, he says that he looked down from his holy height. What he's doing here is he's he's encouraging the reader to imagine just for a moment what it might be like for God to see things on earth from his sacred position high above. I find this incredibly intriguing because the author is encountering the absolute power and authority of God in verse 12, and then he looks down. He describes the king looking down. The Hebrew word for looked is nabed. In this context, nabed suggests that God's gaze is intentional. It's purposeful. It, it reflects his care and concern for the, affair, the affairs of humanity. It signifies his watchful eye and his involvement in the lives of his people. It implies that God is not distant. He is not detached, 
but rather actively involved. He's interested in the well-being of his creation. The author realizes this deep bond between God and humanity, and then he goes on to praise God for it. I'd like to put 12 and, and 20 together. I mean, I wanna, I've got a reason for that. Uh, verses 12 and 20 show us how God cares for his people. He desires that they be set free from their current imprisonment and experience the overwhelming joy of being with him forever. Verse 20 reads, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die. Where in verse 12, God is depicted as powerful and supreme. In verse 20, the psalmist is revealing God's deep empathy and care for his children. Trapped in the bondage of our own sins, we find ourselves unable to establish a meaningful connection with our Creator. Yet, despite the separation from God and mankind, God longs for our liberation. He cares for His children, and He draws them to Himself. Jesus quotes uh, Isaiah and Luke 4, eight. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and uh, recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And this brings us to our last point, a throne with no end. I'd like to... Uh, first bring together the last two sections to give some context. Psalm 102 is a poetic reflection on human frailty, the fleeting nature of life, and the steadfastness of God's character. In our lives, our circumstances can become paralyzing when we don't generally seek God. Frequently, we find ourselves attempting to exhaust our human resources before turning to God. Every one of us will encounter our last day here on earth. For those who proclaim to be believers, there exists a profound hope of an eternal existence alongside Christ in a renewed world. When we deliberately shift our focus to God's sovereignty during difficult times, we change how we perceive control over our, our personal lives. As a result, we trust that God to carry us. Put your finger on verse 25, if you will. I ended the, the last section with, yet despite this separation from God and mankind, he longs for our liberation. God cares for his children and draws them to himself. So how is this possible? For those of you familiar with your Bibles, you might recognize verses 25 through 27 quoted in the New Testament. Okay, so take your fingers off of 25. I don't know why I had you put them on there to begin with. And I want to have you go to Hebrews 1, 10 through 12.
Verse 10 in, in uh, Hebrews 1 reads, and this is, by the way, identical. Actually, there was a reason why I put I don't remember. It's identical to verse 25. Uh, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are at work in your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. There there cannot be a more succinct bridge between the Old and New Testaments describing the supremacy of Christ in the time to come. The writer of Psalm 102 He lived 582 years before Jesus was born. But with with utmost precision, the Holy Spirit uses him to guide us toward the one who personified the supreme and eternal king, Christ Jesus. Just as verses 19, 19 through 20 in Psalm 102 reads, From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, So it is in verses 25 through 28, Christ is on his throne for eternity and he sets free those bound by their transgressions. As we look forward, a familiar verse uh, passage comes to mind. For us, to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In the final verse, verse 28, the psalmist shifts our attention from a sovereign king to that of the king's chosen ones. Those destined to dwell in everlasting existence. He said that the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Church, that's us. He's speaking about us. Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant that God will make with his people. We understand this as a reference to the new covenant established through Jesus' death and resurrection. He, He describes a time when God's laws will be written on people's hearts. It signifies the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Jeremiah is talking about us. This is remarkable. You know, as we start to close here, no matter the hardship we face, our unwavering faith should remain fixed in Christ, who reigns eternally on the throne, offering us an everlasting hope. And only he can offer us this everlasting hope. His kingdom will be for eternity. And in his kingdom, his throne will have no end.
Church, there's, there's no better time than right now to turn your attention to the one who sits on the throne with no end. Ephesians 2.6 says, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We will be seated with him in the heavenly places. You might be here today with a heavy burden. You may be here today because even though you call yourself a Christian, you have a smoldering wick and you're afraid that it's going to burn out. Perhaps you haven't heard from God in a long time. You've, you've been calling out to him, but he's been quiet. You may be here today because you just can't take it anymore and you have nowhere else to turn. Friends, cry out to God like the psalmist did. Pour out all your troubles and then turn your attention to see him on the eternal throne gazing at you with soft eyes, gently saying, I love you. Hold on. I'm with you. I will give you the strength you need because I have a plan for you to be with me for eternity. I can't wait to show you all of who I am. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.